in the book of Luke this morning. I hope you brought your Bible. Luke chapter number 17, we're in the middle of that chapter as we continue to make our way through the book of Luke here. Luke chapter 17, we're going to, to read about five verses here, beginning in verse number 20. Luke 17, and beginning in verse 20, a complete change of uh, subject from where we were last week. And uh, we've skipped over a few verses here, the story of the lepers that you're familiar with. And if you'll stand with me, we'll begin our reading today from God's Word in the book of Luke, chapter 17, verse 20. And when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come, he answered and said unto them, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. And he said unto the disciples, The days will come when you shall desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you shall not see it. And they shall say to you, See here or see there, go not after them nor follow them. For as the lightning that lighteth out of the one part under heaven shineth unto the other part under heaven, so shall also the Son of Man be in that day. But first must he suffer many things and be rejected of this generation. You may be seated. The subject today is the kingdom of God. I lifted that phrase right out of the Scripture, of course. Verse number 20, the Pharisees came and demanded of Jesus when the kingdom of God should come. And you see the kingdom of God again at the end of the verse, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. And you go to the next verse, 21, it talks about the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God. You don't hear people talk about it a great deal. Most Christians, I'm afraid, couldn't even really define it for you, at least clearly. So let's talk about the kingdom of God today. I wonder, do you ever think about the far, far, far distant future? I don't mean heaven. I don't mean talking about going to heaven, uh, that kind of thing. What I'm asking you today is, do you think about what, is going, what this earth is going to be like in the far, far distant future? Where is all of this going? What's happening here, and where are we going to end up in uh, the far distant future? The world, after you become an adult and you've lived and gone around the cycle a few times, the world goes on and on and on, and same things repeated over and over and over, and uh, you wonder, where's all this going? Does the earth have an expiration date stamped on it somewhere? And someday God's just going to say, time is over, it's expired. And then what's going to happen? What will the life on this earth be like um, 10 years from now? Go back 10 years from where we are right now. 
2011. Think of all that's happened in the world in two, since 2011 and the, the meteoric changes that have occurred, even just in the last couple, three years in our society. You would hardly recognize it from days past. And then projected 100 years forward. What would the, will the earth be like? What will, what will be on this corner 100 years from now? Will there be a vibrant church operating here preaching the gospel of Christ? Or will there be a filling station and a convenience store or something like that? Or will there be nothing? Will it be abandoned? What about a thousand years from now? We can't even conceive of that, can we? A thousand years. My, that's forever. I want you to think about it because other people are thinking about it. Some of the brightest minds on the earth are thinking about it a whole lot. And uh, we tend to just go around and around the annual circle. But Jeff Bezos is thinking about it, the richest, second richest man in the world. And so about 10 days ago, he had spent millions and hundreds of millions. And he had uh, created a rocket ship that took him and a four or five other people up to the edge of space. And uh, it wasn't just a ride for him to have a pleasure trip. If you read some of what his thinking is today, Jeff Bezos believes that we're going to have to inhabit other planets. And this is a step towards that. And then the richest man in the world, Elon Musk, he's already been ahead of Bezos in the space program. He hasn't personally ridden up there yet, but he sent our astronauts. He's working with NASA. These two men, arguably the two most wealthy people in the whole world, are spending hundreds of billions of dollars in an attempt to, to inhabit other planets. That's the ultimate goal. The goal is not to just go up and circle the earth or walk on the moon. They really believe that there's an expiration date upon the earth, and there's going to have to be, we're going to have to reach out into space. Our resources are going to be depleted, and there's going to be uh, other issues here, overpopulation perhaps and so on. So they're trying to think, what can we do to escape earth and to create a, a, a new life, if you will? And then we got the prophet, uh, the uh, climate change prophets. You've heard about them. You know about them. One little gal got elected to Congress, and we call her AOC. And she says we've got 12 years left. And she said that over a year ago, didn't she? So I guess we're down to about 10 and a half. And then things are just going to, you know, the climate's going to change, and the earth is going to be uninhabitable. And then we've got the Marxist working on the Great Reset, and uh, we've got them running our government now, too, by the way. But we've got them, and they're saying, you know, that uh, we're not going to own anything, but we're going to be happy. So they're, they're thinking about the future. Do you think about the future? I hope you do. Your Bible, one-third of your Bible is about the future. One-third of the Bible is prophetic and uh, Christians ought to be thinking about that and thinking about that seriously, shouldn't we? 
There's hundreds of groups right now working for peace, and uh, they've been doing that for 6,000 years, and we don't have peace. We're not going to have any until we have the Prince of Peace that comes back and, and rules the earth with a rod of iron. But they think they're going to bring it about, and then we have those who are working for prosperity, and we th have others who are working for uh, what they define as justice, and uh, it's usually a form of social justice that involves government redistribution of the wealth. And we got other people working to save the planet. I, I, I offend some people when I say this, but honey, don't waste your time. You're not going to save the planet. You need to read Second Peter chapter 3, where it says the whole thing's going to melt in fervent heat. <laughs> well, I think that's funny. You don't? I'm not worried about being here when that happens, so I, I just, it, it makes me kind of chuckle, all these people, we're going to save the planet. Sure you are. Tell God about it. Second Peter chapter number three, read it for yourself. And one thing, all these people that are trying to uh, uh, think about the future, all of them have one thing in common. They have in mind that their, their dreams and their aspirations are going to be brought about by human effort. And that somehow we're going to save ourselves. Well, God's Word has a lot to say about that. And this is just a great place to deal with it. Verse 20, when he was demanded of the Pharisees, Jesus is standing one day with his disciples. And the Pharisees come up and they ask him a question. They demand an answer. When will the kingdom of God come? Well, I'm going to deal with when tonight, Lord, this morning, I want to just deal with the kingdom itself. So let's talk about the kingdom described, the kingdom described, number one. You have to know the background of the passage of Scripture here in order to be able to understand what the Pharisee is really doing. That's why I want to deal with it today. Because you see, the Jews had been looking for a Messiah, they had been looking for a king to come for a long, long time. A Jewish king who would come and he would sit on the throne of David, meaning it would be an, a continuation of the, of, the, of the reign of David from long ago, their, their greatest and most glorious king. And they believed that God would raise up among the Jews a Jewish king and he would deliver them from these Roman oppressors that were ruling over them. Talk about no rights at all. They had very few rights ruled over by the iron fist of Rome. They were looking for a political deliverer, if you will. Someone who would come and break the Roman yoke and who would uh, bring freedom back to them as God's Word had given to them in the Old Testament. And those Old Testament prophets have prophesied about this kingdom idea. And if you read your Old Testament, you read it thoroughly, you will see this idea of the kingdom over and over and over in almost every book. In fact, they tell me that there are over 1,500 references directly or allusions and inferences of the kingdom if you go through the Old Testament. We don't have time to look at 1,500 of them. Let's just look at one of them, and it's one of the most outstanding, the book of Isaiah, chapter 11 in your Bible. 
And it describes the kingdom and the king who will come one day in the world's history. And so in Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1, there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, liken it to a tree growing up from a root that's been under the ground for a long time. A branch, capital B, referring to the Messiah, shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord will be upon him. And here's his character. He'll have a spirit of wisdom and understanding, a spirit of counsel and might, a spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge emotionally after the sight of his eyes or reprove after the hearing of his ears, but he will judge and he will rule with righteousness. He'll rule by principle. He'll rule by character, if you will. And he'll judge the poor and reprove with equity the meek of the earth. Talk about justice, now we'll have social justice. And he will smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked, and righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. And this beautiful description of this perfect world that is going to come, the kingdom of God. This kingdom is spoken about in two different ways in the Word of God. First of all, it's spoken of as a political entity, a political kingdom. In other words, you'll be able to see it. It's outward. It is a literal kingdom. We're, we're talking about a place that has a government. There'll be government buildings. There will be organization, and there will be structure, just like a government in, in modern-day times would have or governments have always had. It will have a literal physical king. This is not an imaginary king. This is not some spiritual illusion. A man will sit on a throne and he will rule and reign in this coming kingdom that is described here. But there's a second aspect to the kingdom, and that is that the kingdom will have an, a spiritual aspect to it. It will exist in a spiritual sense. And let me describe that to you because it's very important you understand the kingdom of God is both spiritual and literal in the future. When I say it exists in the hearts of people, what I mean is every person who has truly accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord, every person who acknowledges the authority of Jesus Christ in his or her life, who is ruled by the Word of God, who is ruled by the principles of Jesus Christ in the Scripture. If you submit yourself to the authority of Jesus Christ, if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior of the world, then in your heart, He rules, and so there's the kingdom of God. You have the king and the kingdom. He's got His Word, which is the laws of the kingdom, and you acknowledge that, and so the kingdom of God rules and reigns in your heart. It's spiritual. It's what Jesus said in Matthew 6 and 33 when he said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. 
He's not talking about the political kingdom that will come in the future. He's talking about the spiritual kingdom that exists right now, that we seek the kingdom of God, his rule in our lives. And then he says, if you do that, you'll be rewarded. All these other things will be added unto you in God's time, of course. Now, when Jesus was asked this question by these Pharisees, I promise you the Pharisee who asked him that question was not concerned about spiritual kingdom. That's not what he had in mind at all. He was interested in somebody coming to the throne of Israel, organizing an army, and through the power of God, driving those hated Romans back into the sea, and they would have a Jewish kingdom like the throne of David again. This is what he had in mind. So he wasn't thinking about anything spiritual at the time. He was thinking of that long-promised, prophesied, by 1,500 verses, that kingdom that is going to come in the future. The kingdom of God is, as I said, such a major theme running through the Scripture. We read it over and over. In fact, I have to confess, I read my Bible and I see the kingdom and I don't even, I don't even always think about it. I just go through that. But when I begin to stop and concentrate, I, I see it everywhere. It's future. So the kingdom of God has not existed on this earth yet. The kingdom of God is literal. So it's more than just a spiritual uh, where, where, where we who have Christ in our hearts honor him. He is our king. The kingdom of God is a continuation of the throne of David. Do you know all those covenants and promises in the Old Testament where God made a covenant with Abraham? And he made covenants with David, and he made covenants with Moses. When the kingdom of God comes, all of those covenant promises are going to be fulfilled. And so it's just going to be like David ruled and reigned. He died. He slept with his fathers, as the Scripture says. And then there's this long blank, and then suddenly the kingdom of David emerges again. Only this time Jesus Christ is on the throne. Jesus, of course, is the king in this, in this coming kingdom. And he will fulfill all those promises that he made to these Old Testament patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on. Who will be the citizens of that future kingdom? Well, there will be a number of different kinds of people. The kingdom will have as its citizens the, the people who survived the tribulation period will be its, among its citizens. And then the Jews will be gathered from all over the earth in another great regathering, and they will be citizens of the kingdom. And then the Gentiles who survived the tribulation period. And if you're a Christian, you'll be there because the Bible says the saints that come back with the Lord Jesus Christ, we will rule and reign with him we will come back. In fact, his reward for faithful Christian service will be that we will have positions of service in the kingdom. So you begin to think about that. It involves you. It involves me. It involves every single believer. It will be a very, very special time like it's never been since Adam and Eve lived. Because the curse will be removed from the earth when 
the kingdom is set up. And so the roses won't have any thorns. And sickness will be non-existent during the kingdom. And all of the things that have cursed mankind will be gone during that kingdom age, except for death. There will be some death during that time. And most of all, Satan will be bound. So there won't be any evil influences from Satan and his demons. I think that's important enough to read about it. Go with me to the book of Revelation, to the end of your Bible. And that's where you see the most detailed descriptions of the kingdom. Revelation chapter 20. And in fact, in these few verses here at the beginning of verse 20, you see the another detailed description of the kingdom. And you see here where Satan is going to be bound, and we'll read it, Revelation 20 and 1. I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, the old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. A thousand years is a millennium. That's the time, the duration of the kingdom. And he cast him into the bottomless pit, the abyss. And he shut him up. And he set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more. Satan's power is removed from him. He could not re deceive the nations till the thousand years should be fulfilled. There it is again, a specific time. And then after that, he would be loosed a little season. And then John said, I saw thrones and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. The ability to judge, to make decisions, to rule, to reign. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus during the tribulation period, the martyrs. They will have been resurrected and enter the kingdom. And those that did not worship the beast during the tribulation period, nor his image. And those who received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and they reigned with Christ a thousand years. And the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. Who are the rest of the dead? That's the unsaved who have died through the ages, and they're still in their graves. Everybody else, though, has been resurrected. The Christians that are on the earth now in the rapture and these people that died during the tribulation who were believers, they've been resurrected now. And blessed and holy is he that hath part in that first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ. And here it is, they shall reign with him a thousand years. So there's the citizens that are going to make up the kingdom of God. And there will be peace and prosperity for a thousand years. The curse removed from the earth. For the first time, peace, because the UN will have long ago been taken care of. <laughs> it won't exist. It will go down in the tribulation period, I'm sure. And so the real peace will come to the earth, not the 
fake peace that men have tried to create or that they couldn't create. Peace upon the earth. And Satan, out of the picture, down in the abyss, bound and his powers taken from him with all of his demons. And then at the end of it, very interesting thing. Go on to verse 7. At the end of the millennium, the thousand years are when they're expired, Satan will be loosed out of his prison. And he will go out and deceive the nations. Once again, he's always a deceiver, isn't he? His main modus of operation is to deceive. And Satan will deceive the nations which are in the four quarters of the earth among them, Gog and Magog, and so on. He'll gather people together. In fact, isn't this interesting? Multitudes of people. He will gather together the number of whom is the sand of the sea. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to rebel against God again. And this era, this thousand years of peace and prosperity is going to expire. It's going to come to an end. God is going to release Satan for a brief period of time. And you know what? People are going to believe him. They're going to be deceived by him. He's going to have a multitude like the number of the sand of the sea. And he's going to go out and rebel against God. The millennial reign of Christ. Think of this. It's going to end in a war. A thousand years of peace and prosperity. And then it ends in a war. And if you will notice the last part here, uh, verse number nine, it's not going to last long because fire is going to come down from God out of heaven and devour them, and the devil will be cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, etc. The millennial kingdom, you know what that reveals? That the heart of man is so incorrigibly sinful that even after a thousand years of reign under Jesus Christ, multitudes of people are open to be deceived by Satan again, just like they were in the Garden of Eden, and they're going to follow him to their destruction. That's why the institutions of man can't save the world. It's why we can't bring peace to this earth. It's, 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 it's why we can't ever achieve this utopia that everybody dreams of that the Bible calls the millennial reign of Christ. We can't do it. The problem is not out in society. The problem is in the heart of man. That the devil can come back and deceive him. After all these wonderful blessings that God has poured upon the creation for all of these years. The final event of the millennial reign will be a judgment, a judgment where no Christian will ever go. It's called the great white throne. It's in verse 11. I saw the great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heavens fled. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great. Now, these are the unsaved dead who've died since the Garden of Eden. And they stand before God. And the books are open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead are judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which was in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. Death and hell being Hades. 
And they were judged every man according to their works. And death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So the final event is this great white throne judgment. And then following the great white throne, what's going to happen? It's not the end of the world at that point. If you will look, continue reading right there, it's all right here in two chapters. If you'll just read the Bible, you'll see it. Chapter 21 and verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. So there's going to be a complete reconfiguration of the physical universe. Now, I don't have time to read it, but it's Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10, 11, 12, and so on. And don't you read it right now. If you want to look it up, it tells you what's going to happen. The elements are going to melt with a fervent heat. There's going to be a complete renovation. And then after that, what's going to happen? Is that the end of the world? No, that's not. Verse 2, I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared for a bride adorned for her husband, and a voice saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and he himself shall be with them and be their God, and wipe away all the tears of their eyes, and there won't be any more death or sorrow or crying or COVID. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed upon are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, I make all things new. Amen. That's the hope of the Christian. The millennial reign, the kingdom of God has come to earth, and it's an eternal kingdom. After this, the kingdom of God, God himself through Jesus Christ rules through all of eternity. And I can't, I don't have the time this morning to even begin to tell you all that's going to be involved in that. I think it's going to involve the entire universe, the stars and the planets and all of that. God didn't make those, just let them stay out there forever. He has a plan for them. The kingdom described. But then this Pharisee came up and asked Jesus, well, tell me about the kingdom of God. When is it coming, Master? And what Jesus said to him, it's come, buddy, and you have rejected it. It's already here. It's in your midst right now. Let me show you what I mean. In verse 20, the Pharisee comes, when will the kingdom of God come? And Jesus answered and said, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation. You're not going to be able to see it. The word observation actually literally means with, with an outward show. It's not going to come in a big spectacular entrance of some kind. The kingdom of God is going to be without observation. You're not going to be able to see it when it's forming. The negative, but then in verse 21, he gives us the positive. He says, behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Now, here's where a, a, interpreting the Scripture is so critically important. You read that, and uh, I read that for many years, and I thought, well, let's talk about the spiritual kingdom. The kingdom of God is within you. It's not what it's referring to here. 
If you have a marginal Bible, you'll be able to see it. You'll have a little note there, and over in the middle of, of the Bible, in the margin, it'll say, in the midst of you, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Jesus was not saying that the kingdom of God has already come, the kingdom the Pharisee was talking about. He wasn't saying that the kingdom of God was in the heart of this Pharisee, who was his adversary, who was always resisting him. What Jesus was saying was, the kingdom of God is in your midst, your marginal reading there. It's in your midst. You know what Jesus was saying to the man? The man standing here talking to him. Jesus, he says, when is the kingdom of God coming? And Jesus said, here I am, buddy. It's right in the middle of you right now, and you guys can't see it. Right here it is. I'm standing before you. The king has come, and you won't even recognize him. And that's the story of the life of Christ. Do you remember in Luke chapter number one, where we, when we begun here, an angel came, Gabriel came and spoke to Mary, the little virgin girl, and he said to her, you're going to have this little child, this little boy, and he shall reign, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. I mean, at the birth announcement, they said he was going to be the king, and there was going to be a kingdom. And then in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, God called John the Baptist, and John goes out to preach, and the multitudes have emptied out of the cities, and they've come to hear him preach. And what is his message? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom is here right now. And then he pointed, behold, the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. There he is. And then the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 4 and 17 came. And what was his message? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Same message as John. And then I go to John chapter 10. And it wasn't just John and Jesus. Jesus sent out 70 of his disciples. And he said, I want you to go to the house of Israel. Very important. You're not going to go to the Gentiles. You're not going to the whole world yet because this is, this is for the Jews. This is their prophesied kingdom that they've been looking for. And so I want you to go to the house of Israel, and I want you to preach and teach them. And what is the message you're going to preach? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist's message, Jesus' message, the 70 disciples as they went across the cities of Israel. Repent for the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God is at hand. And then you see it so powerfully. Go with me to John chapter 18, please. Jesus is standing before Pilate that day, and he's already been beaten, and the crown's on his head, and he's bloody, and he is... A pitiful, pitiful sight as he stands there. You have to pity him. John chapter 18 and verse number 33, Pilate entered into the judgment hall again. And he called Jesus. And what did he say to him? Are you the king? Have you come to establish a rebel kingdom that's going to oppose Rome? Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it of thee? 
or of me? And Pilate said, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you unto me. What have you done? And Jesus said, my kingdom, my kingdom, he's talking about it there, is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from here. And Pilate said to him, well, then are you a king or not? And Jesus said, you say that I am. Yes, I'm the king. Jesus acknowledged that he was the king of the Jews right there. Yes, you're saying that I am. And the inference is, yes, I am. And to this end was I born. And for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. And everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate turns away and says, well, what is truth? The question of today as well. And then what did Pilate do? He said, I'm turning them over to you, the Jewish mob here. You can crucify him, but I want you to write a sign and I want you to put it up over his head because even with all that's been done and said, I have this little grudging admiration for this man. Right above his head, the king of the Jews. Man, he was crucified as a king. He was officially acknowledged as the king by the Romans, the Roman authority when they crucified him. John 1 and 1, one of the saddest verses in all the Scripture, isn't it? He came into his own, and his own received him not. He came into his own, his own people, and they received him not. Only 11 other disciples and a few other people followed him and recognized him as the Messiah, the subject of those 1,500 promises and prophecies. Well, the question has to be in your mind, well, what if the Jews had accepted him? What if they had said, okay, we accept you as our king? What would have happened then? Well, he still would have had to die because, you see, his message was twofold. He came to be the king and was rejected. But his mission also involved his redemption. Look in verse 25 there of Luke 17. He said, I have to suffer. And in Mark 10 and 45, he said, the Son of Man didn't come to be ministered to, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. I came to be a ransom for the souls of man. I came to die for sin. I came to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I don't know how God would have worked it out. I'm totally speculating now, so I'm honest about that. Had the Jews accepted him that day as their king and the kingdom would have been set up, he still, though, would have had to pay for sin. Redemption had to be accomplished. The rest of it 
we don't know. But to me, it's so sad. In fact, I turn over from Luke 17 to Luke 19, and I go to verse 41, and to me, this might be the saddest passage in Scripture. In Luke 19 and 41, and when Jesus was come near, he beheld the city, and he wept over it. And he said to himself, obviously, or maybe it was well, he was speaking of the, the people. If thou hadst known, oh, circle that in your Bible. If, if, if. If you had only known the things which belong to your peace, if you had only known what could have been if you would have accepted me as your Savior, but you didn't, if you could have only known and he wept over the city. Look at verse 41. And the word wept there has the idea of sobbing. He just broke down and sobbed his heart out because why have you rejected me? I did all those miracles. All these wonderful works have been done which were prophesied as signs of the kingdom. And yet in spite of that, you rejected me. If you could have only known what could have been. And then he talks about the judgment of Titus coming up in 37 more years from there. Now look up here with me. And the king is still rejected. The king wasn't just rejected by the Jews. He's rejected in America this morning. He's been rejected throughout time. And you know why we don't have a kingdom? You can't have a kingdom without a king. You can't reject the king and still have the kingdom. He's rejected by the rulers of this world this morning. Think of government policy that rejects him and his rule. Abortion. Marriage gender, every issue that we're talking about in the newspaper today, it's a rejection of the king and his rule, his policies. He's rejected by our educational system largely, and it ignores God and his word, teaches people that God had nothing to do with our creation, that we have evolved. He's rejected his standards of righteousness and morality and values are rejected today in favor of perversion. Often, he's been rejected by churches. And millions of individuals still reject him. They're not interested. I'm going to talk about tonight as it was in the days of Noah further down in the text. And what Jesus points out in the days of Noah, they just were, it wasn't that it was just a wicked culture. It was that they didn't care. They rejected Noah's message. He preached 120 years and didn't have any converts. They re, we've been rejecting the king all the way through history. I hope you're not. I hope that his rule 
is a real thing in your life and in your heart today. Not that you're just a churchgoer, but that Jesus is your Lord. A man handed Dr. W.A. Crystal his business card. Dr. Crystal said, I flipped it over and on the back, I read these words. Are you tired of being pestered by sincere people who are forever waiting or wanting to save your soul? To give you tracts, to invite you to church and talk to you about salvation? Well, it will not be long until this kind won't be allowed to bother you anymore. The proper authorities are soon going to take action and see to it that these people are no longer around. There's a place for them, and there won't be any of them allowed to pester people in hell. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Will you stand to your feet with me, please?